This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Harry's, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon.com. And it looks like we're back. Uh, is that how it looks? I don't know, man, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight's show is going up late again. Yeah, that's a record. Two weeks in a row. But this time it's only by a day, thank goodness. Yeah, I was doing my civic duty this week. Yeah, ye old jury duty, which is your civic duty and everyone else's. It's also the present you get when you register to vote. Not just LA, everywhere, no, right? everywhere, yeah, yes. It's like an open-ended invitation to spend four to six months of your life <laughs> deciding someone's fate all while earning a staggering $15 a day. Well, wow. Let's see if that's I can do that full time. You know, it's better than podcasting. <laughs> yeah, so I actually hadn't talked to you much since uh, a couple of days ago about this. You did not get picked, did you? Once a wallflower, always a wallflower. Oh, well, <laughs> what kind of case was it? Can you tell us now? Well, yeah, I guess I can because I didn't get picked. It's still going on. I'm not going to name the defendant yeah, they, they, didn't leave, they didn't let the guy go because, oh, you know what? Mr. Philbrook couldn't attend. Yeah. Me, so you're free to go. Yeah, you're free to go. No, it's still no. going on. Yeah, it was a murder trial. Yeah. I was surprised, honestly. I didn't think I would get something so intense. Well, I, you never know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was actually kind of excited to maybe do it, but I don't know how we would have gotten the show done while no, I was on it, frankly. No. And well, it, would, it actually would have turned into a legal courtroom undercover podcast, <laughs> <laughs> which is Scott just recording with his, right. illegally with his iPhone. Which ends with me in jail for a year for contempt. Well, that's the finale. Yeah. yeah I listen to that. It's really sobering, though, because once I realized that this guy sitting in front front of me was being accused of murder. The idea of sitting there and deciding his fate, it's an intense thought. Oh, absolutely. No, I was on there one time and we honestly decided that the guy was innocent and he got to go home that Friday evening. And I got to say, it's probably the best weekend he's ever had. <laughs> and, that's, and then you realize like what a, what a huge responsibility it is. In this case here, your service was only a day this time around. So yeah. you're lucky. And now I think they've changed the rules. It used to be good for two years, but now since everybody skips out on it, you're good for a year though, right? Yeah, I yeah. think it's a year. Well, I am super excited about tonight's show. I think Forrest is as well. We have so much fun stuff to talk about. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. If aliens visit us, the outcome would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. Stephen Hawking. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. So do you play Pokemon? Not the mobile app version, because I heard they mine all your data. Oh, do they? You they're, didn't hear they're that? They're tracking you. Oh, you're really on that. I'm surprised you never heard no, about that. No, well, I wasn't going to play it, so it didn't matter. No, it's, it requires a lot of poking around, as it should, I guess. It's like a scavenger hunt, right? That's the mobile app game. Well, the mobile one is, yeah. but that has nothing to do with the original version, no, of which course. was like these collector cards yeah. where you play a sophisticated version of war. Different animals you collect have different properties and they're strengths. Not, they're not animals. They're well, Pokemon. They're, <laughs> They're, well, it's Pocket Monster. You know what that yeah. name comes from. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Japanese. Well, there's this one Pokemon called Sableye. And it, Sable Are you pronouncing that right? Yeah, Sableye. Okay. Now, Sableye is pretty cool. According to one of the many Pokemon wikis, Sableye has deep purple-colored fur with small claws, pointed mm. ears, and sharp teeth. It has two large gemstones over its eyes and another gem on its stomach with three more 
on its back. Now, it was told that if you look at Sableye eye to eye, your soul will be stolen. But the evidence suggests that this Pokemon is actually very friendly, and they will only do mischief to travelers to win attention. Their mischief makes them notorious, but in fact, it is only because they have a long stay in the dark cave and become too lonely. That's poorly translated from a yeah. Japanese website. I uh, oh, I would have guessed that, yes. Yeah, so let me ask you, though. This little guy, does he sound familiar to you? Yeah. Aside from the teeth. Well, that sounds like Stitch. We follow somebody, Matthew, who does these awesome yokai drawings and descriptions on Patreon. Yes. We follow his artwork. And, yes. And, uh, of course, yokai are the Japanese demons and different... Uh, mystical mischief makers and spiritual characters. And so I I always look at those. But I think a lot of contemporary Japanese characters that I see, because I used to play this uh, this mobile phone app, and it's a mashup, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like yes. they would have one card character was Tiamat. You mean the yes. ancient Sumerian goddess? Like, And you're fighting some medieval English character like Merlin. Like, what? what is this? <laughs> it's just everything, because they think it's fun, and, and right. it is fun. It does ring a, a lot of bells that it's goblin-like, but they're, of course, they're making it friendly. By the way, to be fair to Matthew, it's Matthew Meyer. Yes. He has Matthew an amazing Meyer. Patreon page. He draws yokai all year long. It's very cool to see. If you like Pokemon, you should check out his Patreon page. Oh, yeah. Page. Well, no, because and it's rooted in the different regions of Japan, and they all have their different fables and myths about these very strange creatures, and they all have different properties. Yes. Some are helpful, but hideous. Some are hideous and mean-spirited, and they do different things. Yeah, one of my favorite ones when we first started out, I posted one that he did. It's this big, ugly-looking thing that's basically a wall. And it gets in your way late at night. Oh yeah, that's right. When you're lost. Yeah. Well, you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to to pass something. Well, the, and yeah. that's the the Pokemon have a lot in common with that kind of stuff, but they're obviously less varied in terms of the different types of things they do with respect to obstructing you. Exactly. But in this case, let's talk about Sableye a little bit. He's one of, I should say, it. Apparently, he's mostly referred to as it. Yeah. Sableye is one of only a handful of Pokemon based on an American folk creature. Uh-huh. Sableye is inspired by none other than the Hopkinsville Goblins, who, oh, of who, by the way, as you might have guessed, uh-huh. are big in Japan. <laughs> they like the goblins. I think they yeah. might be even be more famous there than they are here. So Sableye has huge luminous eyes, as I described, pointed ears and claws. Its attacks are known as Fury Swipes, and Shadow Claw. And one of its special abilities is called Stall, which apparently is nearly useless, but yeah. it might be connected to the Hopkinsville attack, which right. took hours, but was nonviolent. Uh-huh. ARC member Quay Joslin has said the following about Sableye. He apparently has some background with Pokemon. In the video games for Game Boy Advance to current version in the Nintendo 3DSs, he's middle of the road, not overly strong or damage sponge capable. What he is, though, is unique. One of the only Pokemon to not have what's called weaknesses. Pokemon have types. Think water is powerful against fire. Sableye's combination, dark ghost, means he doesn't take damage with extra multipliers attached. This can be useful in some cases. He, and Quaid's calling him a he, so maybe he's a he, he's also more of a tricky attacker. Nothing over-the-top powerful, but lots of skills that can be annoying or tricky and cause headaches for opponents. Again, sound familiar? The whole mm. trickster thing, which we always uh, talk about. Well, yeah, that's a common running thing with a lot of little folk. Yes. Yeah. Now, listener Luke Medeja adds in our Facebook group, he's definitely middle of the road by himself, but give him a megastone, and he turns into quite a hassle. Listener Christian Alejandro Martinez adds another fun fact about Sableye. One of its abilities in the game is called Prankster, which gives him priority for status moves. 
Christian went on to add that his mom would be proud that he was able to put his knowledge of all 802 <laughs> Pokemon to use today. I don't know what use this is. But 802. Yeah. yeah, we're glad he's able to uh, provide us with the knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And I want to give a special thanks to Kyle Christie and Graham Popovich for providing images of the Sableye card, which we use for tonight's show, and you'll see in our pictures. Here's the bottom yeah. line. Do all these personality traits sound familiar? I'm sorry, you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking they... you. It would sound rhetorical. <laughs> I should have said, Forrest, no, no, no. Yeah, do no, these no. all sound familiar? Yeah. Yes, they are very common. And when I say little folk, that's very generally referred to as, as all these miniature supernatural type beings, which is, it varies from culture to culture, of course, but a lot of them share the same types of characteristics. Think about the leprechaun. He's mischievous. He yes. offers... A reward if you capture him and let him go. But he also tries to trap you, or he could. They're not to be trusted. They're pranksters. And so I usually, you know, I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of, uh, we do have a lot of Irish listeners who could maybe tell us uh, more about that. But I grew up thinking that they weren't, well, Darby O'Gill are the little people. But, you know, but they weren't so mean. And then there's some like the Pukwaji, the Native American Pukwaji, or Wendigo, and some of those can be very vicious yes. uh, and deadly, or they lead you off, they trick you to follow them, and you're never seen again. Yeah, they and take you, you right you, off a cliff. Well, yeah, <laughs> off a cliff, or maybe you go to the underworld, the upside-down world in Stranger Things, you know what I'm saying, where it's, who knows? But there are a lot of contemporary accounts, and I'm talking about recently, that I have heard on, on shows like Jim Harold's Campfire, where people were serious, like, we saw something rustling in the bushes, and we had this feeling to go off and follow it. So it's pervasive throughout different cultures, but it varies and as we we're talking about yokai, some are dangerous. Some are just kind of a nuisance and they play jokes on you. Some will be helpful if you help them. Like if it's a, uh, I remember one that was kind of a lost waterlogged sailor who just wants food. If you give them food, he goes away or he scares your children. Or he's like a Père Foutard character where you tell your kids like, if you're bad, he's going to steal you away. So it fits every element of a cultural need for these myths. Ah, excellent. See, at Astonishing Legends, we come at you every week with a <laughs> dose of astonishingly useless trivia. <laughs> hey, if, hey, if you're facing a Pugwudgie, this might come in very this handy. This might be good. Well, you can whip out your Sableye card and maybe exactly. you know, get away. Okay, so we need to recap last week's show a little bit before we get back into this Hopkinsville story, which has been so much fun. Tonight's show is really going to be a lot of fun. We are both considerably excited about the topic. No, just analyzing what yeah. was really going on because it's so fantastical. Yeah, yeah, and so for those of you joining us who might not have listened to last week's show yet, or there's been some time between the last one and this one, we're going to recap just briefly what we talked about last week. On August 21st of 1955, 11 people at a farmhouse in rural Kentucky in a little town called Kelly, which is about... 10 minutes north of a larger town called Hopkinsville. Yeah, Kelly's just kind of a neighborhood. A neighborhood. Uh, but, but they're farm Yeah, it's unincorporated. Yeah, it's farmland. Yes. Yeah. 11 people at a farmhouse there encountered creatures that they could not explain. Shortly after one of them allegedly saw a UFO fly overhead and seemingly land on a neighboring property about 300 feet away while he was out at the well getting some water. They were alerted to an unwelcome guest about an hour later by a barking dog. And at that point, two members of the family, Billy Ray Taylor and Elmer Lucky Sutton, grabbed a couple of firearms to see what was going on. Over the course of the next three-plus hours, the farmhouse was besieged by these small, goblin-like creatures that repeatedly approached doors and windows in spite of being shot at, in some cases, at point-blank range. 
the family was petrified. During a lull in the action, the entire group vacated the house and fled in two cars to the police station in nearby Hopkinsville, where they conveyed their story to the authorities. Several branches of law enforcement then made their way out to the farm, not knowing what to expect. The family wouldn't even re-enter their own house until it was cleared by the officers at the scene. Authorities patrolled the area inside and out, but notably did not attempt to get to where the UFO had supposedly landed 300 feet further north, past a fence and down a gully on a neighboring property. They found nothing and left a few hours later, at which point the Kelly Goblins returned and tormented the family for a few more hours before vanishing just before daybreak. Scott, there's a war going on. What? Again? Do I have to move the car? <laughs> no, no, no. That was a salmon fight. Oh. And besides, your car is still armed with crowd dispersal countermeasures, right? Shh. <laughs> so you must be talking about the Razor Wars, right? Harry's versus the big guys? I am. And it's still going on, of course. It's the classic story of the underdog up against the giant. And when the giant controls 70% of the world's razors as of 2015... You know what happens, right? Yeah, they get to charge you whatever they want. Precisely. And that's what Harry's is out to change. By offering a great shave at a fair price. Their razor is made in their own German factory, which has over 100 years of blade-making experience. So Harry's has direct control over ensuring the highest quality. And since they sell directly to you, the blades are actually about half the price as those overpriced big-name brands. And quite honestly, it's as close and comfortable a shave as anything I've ever tried. You know, their lotions and creams are top-notch, too. Well, yeah, I do know, because our recording space, affectionately known as Blanket Fortiana, smells a whole lot better after you've shaved. <laughs> Why, thank you so much. So don't believe all the fake brand news you might hear. As we always say, check out something for yourself and form your own opinions. And that's exactly what Harry's is offering you the chance to do with their free trial set. And all of Harry's products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee. So you've really got nothing to lose. You really don't. In fact, as Scott mentioned, Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades. They'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash legends. You just pay for the shipping. That's right. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. A $13 value for free when you sign up. Just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. To get your free trial set, go to harrys.com slash legends right now. That's harrys.com slash legends. Hey everyone, this is Rebecca, and when I'm not listening to Astonishing Legends... I'm probably still listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, journalists originally cited 12 to 14 creatures that night. Most of the eyewitnesses, however, only ever reported seeing one, and only one of them said that there were two in his field of vision at the same time, and even that was only for a moment. So I think that's important. The larger story, the mythic story, is that there was an army of these little goblins right. attacking the right. house and attacking is also not really accurate. All they were doing was slowly walking up to it with their arms in the air. <laughs> no, it's all... It or is, floating, I should say. They weren't uh, even seen to be walking, really. Well, that is a trait, some people say, with shadow people, where it seems like they're walking, but they're actually kind of gliding. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's the whole trait 
grab bag from the underworld, from the other side, from beyond the veil. So they're acting in very strange ways. But that leads to a lot also of speculation about like, well, if they didn't seem like they're actually putting their feet down, well, then it's got maybe it's a, a bird type thing. Each thing that people mention and they take that to heart, people who are analyzing the story, makes them come up with different, uh, well, they said this and it's like, this whole thing's a mishmash of you know, phantasmagoria of yes. strange actions. And think about it from their perspective, the family's perspective, the Sutton's and Billy Ray Taylor's family, they are freaking out. They're terrified. They don't know what these things are. Obviously, to them, these are not natural creatures, but just something weird looking coming up to the window. Actually, when they first saw my approach from the dark, because yes. I, I believe they were looking out the back door, it's like, what is... Well, first of all, you got to remember that night. Billy Ray Taylor claims that he saw not just a streaking light through the sky, but actually something landing. And yes. the next obvious conclusion you can draw is that something comes out of whatever landed. Right, about is, an hour later. And is approaching the house. So they start seeing something coming out of the darkness of the woods, approaching the house. They go back inside and they're like, what the heck? Maybe grab some guns, take a look outside. They see these strange creatures. And now these creatures are coming closer and closer. Yep, one's and raising he, its hands and it's like, that's enough. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that, like, so they start firing. That's the attitude uh, up for where I'm from. Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so they're not waiting to find out if these guys are friendly or, uh, you know, bringing love or gifts or anything. Yeah. Plus, uh, people saw them. Glennie Langford saw one press its face against the window. Yes. And the windows are up. It's a very hot night out. So there's a screen to keep the bugs out, but the windows are open. Yes. So, again, this is terrifying. So, and the other thing is that I want to point out as far as the number, yeah, these numbers and the facts, quote unquote, are all over the place. And if you're shooting at one and you think, I, I must have hit it, I'm six feet away from this thing, I blasted it in the face, it's got to be dead. And then another one pops up like, wait, there's another one? Yeah. So I think that added, if you take the story to be factual, or at least has- If you as, believe any of this at all. If you believe them, <laughs> and we're going to get to that, that's an interesting aspect you just yeah. brought up, because yeah. some parts are believed, even by the skeptics. Yes. If you believe that they're shooting at these things, and they and they keep popping up like these arcade ducks, like, bing, and how many are there? This well, and that's crazy. the other thing. And yeah. when they shoot at them, what they don't hear is the sound of bullets hitting- flesh right. or buckshot hitting flesh. What they hear is bullets hitting a metallic surface and in some cases a ricocheting sound. Yes. Like you heard in an old-timey episode of The Lone Ranger. Yeah, like, exactly. Beow! Right. Whatever, that's it's hitting metal and that is one of the descriptions. Again, the descriptions are all over the place. Some papers later said they were glowing. Glennie Lankford, I believe, said, well, no, they were kind of shiny. But the original newspaper article, if I remember correctly, said the description was metal clad. Yes. So it's some kind of outfit. This is not the creature from the Black Lagoon where he's naked but scales. You yes. Know, just there's something there that is making contact with the shot. Uh, by the way, speaking of the creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon, oh, <laughs> uh, Rob yeah. Christofferson yeah. is an ARC member, a good friend of the show, and has his own show. And our resident UFO expert posted the most hilarious cartoon, well, which I retweeted, yeah. where it's the creature from the Black Lagoon and there's a guy on the shore with a fishing line and the line's in the creature's mouth <laughs> and he's just standing there in the water about a foot of water and he goes I gotta say that's a pretty realistic looking lure yeah <laughs> he's like dude I gotta hand it to you 
Pretty good looking lure. Oh, I love Dan Peraro comics. And this is his classic one panel comic that yes. you'll see in the paper. Very live. funny. It's in our Twitter feed if you, yeah. don't, if you don't follow us on Twitter. Plus, he's into UFOs because he always puts a little UFO icon or he has these funny things. It's either a stick of dynamite or a piece of pie or a little alien in a UFO saucer. Nice. Yeah, so. Nice. Here's the thing about the UFO, which is very interesting. I'm glad yeah. you said that because we briefly mentioned this in part one, but we're going to get more specific on it now here in part two. There is corroboration. <laughs> Did I say it right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I you, admit, I fully, but I've been saying submission. it wrong. Yeah, we had either a lot of complaints uh, from a lot of people yeah. or one complaint multiple times from the same person about the way I was saying And now you're too corroboration. Precise. I was thinking I was saying cooperation. Corroboration. I, I was leaving out the middle R's. It's just, I admit you know, it. Maybe it's a Southern thing. No, uh, but people say probably, probably. Probably, probably. Yeah. yeah. Turn the light on. Please I had a friend, alone. my best friend, Buddy, who listens to this show, used to say own. Turn the light on. And he would say, look in the mirror. Oh, that's interesting. I'm sorry, Buddy. I don't know why I'm doing that to Okay. You. I'm sure that you don't say those things anymore. Okay, so. Back on track, yes. <laughs> Anyway, the Center for UFO Studies report entitled Close Encounter at Kelly, which we referenced many times in part one, written by Isabel Davis and Ted Blocker. From this report, we can get the following information. A state police officer situated at the Shady Oaks restaurant. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, Shady Oaks restaurant. Personally saw what he described as, quote, several meteors passing overhead, making a noise that he said was similar to artillery fire, or a whining sound. Now, how similar does that sound to Billy Ray saying that yeah. what flew over his head was making a hissing sound? A half hissing sound. Yeah, as yes. he said, it's just a strange sound. I've never heard a meteor really make a sound. Well, but I've not been close enough to a meteor to hear the sound it would make, so yeah. I can't really say. But <laughs> yeah. this police officer personally observed two of them, and he was about two miles north of Hoptown. I just want to say that. I know, it's a great phrase. He's about two miles north of Hopkinsville in the direction of Kelly on the road that leads to the Sutton Farmhouse. He said that these meteors were traveling in a slightly descending trajectory from the direction of the Sutton Farm. Although the timing is vague, this is thought to have happened after the first encounter. Right. So it's more... So it's not that he saw the same thing that Billy Ray saw when he was out at the well. It's after the first encounter. So just keeping that in mind. And also coming from the Sutton Farmhouse instead of going Going, to it. Right, exactly. The officer reported initially that they were definitely not meteors. He stated that he had seen the Perseids himself just a few weeks earlier in August and that these were larger, brighter objects. However... He later recanted this observation, saying specifically that they were meteors, and that was it. Nothing but meteors. Nothing to see here, folks. Yeah, well, yeah. and that's what I was talking about. This, for me, this belies that either he was coerced, yeah. or he's reframing it for the sake of spin. He may have rethought Or, you know, to distance himself from ridicule about the whole story once it started to become kind of silly to some people. Who knows why he changed it? Because when he first said yeah. it, he seemed a little bit more vague about whether or not they were meteors. Well, there was some flip-flopping. We're going to get to Brian Ooh, Dunning's article. Yes, Brian Dunning's article here, which I like, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, his analysis of the article. But he was saying something that was interesting about Billy Ray Taylor's story is that he first said he saw something streaking and then changed his story the other way, which is like, no, no, something landed. If I recall, the first on-the-scene newspaper article from the Kentucky New Era said definitely that something landed, that he saw something pass overhead, not streak like a meteor, but landed in the gully. Right, but I, I want to add to this just briefly sure. a couple of things. One, yeah. Billy Ray, known to be the most flowery right. guy when it comes to telling the story, and 
Two, the gully was 30 feet below the ground level of the house and behind a row of trees. So the most he could have seen is it descending behind the trees. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is that uh, A few hundred feet away from yeah, it. Yeah, that's the discrepancy here. And that's if he's not being flowery about it, which is possible. And I, there's another quick thing I want to say to sure. our listeners about that. In spite of the fact that Billy Ray is prone to maybe exaggerating for the sake of drama, right. which we're going to hear a little bit more about tonight when it comes to the sketches of these things, it doesn't mean that he is lying. And I don't really yeah. know how to describe this other than to say I have a large extended Southern family. And it is <laughs> it is filled yeah. with comedians and, and entertainers. Storytellers. Yeah, and yeah. storytellers. Yeah, it's a tradition. We it's, have tons of uh, fans that I love, and a lot of them are using the word y'all yeah. uh, at us. And, and, and uh, you, you explained it earlier. It's like, look, Southerners love a good story. They love to hear it. They love to tell one. Yes. And uh, yeah, I guess it's true with It doesn't mean he didn't catch the fish. It just yeah, might yeah. not have been that big. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or spoken foot. before you cut its head off. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. <laughs> right. Whatever your, your tale it is. It looked but, right at me and said, don't. <laughs> but here's here's Billy Ray's angle, I believe, that, look, he's a carny. I guess it's an you know, easy target to pick at. Itinerant worker, not that reliable, blah, blah, blah. But he's already gone through something because he came into the house that night saying, hey, I just saw some bright kind of object making a noise out behind the house. And I think it landed. Now, that's the story. If you, yes. if you go with it, something landed. If you believe little, any of this at well, all. Well, if he does, if the family did, but the family didn't. That's yeah. my point. So yeah. he comes in the house, seven, uh, eight o'clock. Uh, seven o'clock. It's just getting dark. So he's, I just saw the most unusual thing. And the family, again, being a no-nonsense folks, are like, oh, come on, you kidder. You're pulling our legs here. And he's like, no, no. And so they kind of shout him down. He's like, all right, fine, whatever. I mean, they talked about it for a while. And then, uh, you know, like there's no radio. There's no TV in this place. There's there's no telephone. You're playing cards and you're talking to each other and that's the entertainment. But that's all that's going on. So people used to, they used to talk to each other a lot, unlike today and uh, where they're texting, but they're telling each other stories. But anyway, my point is that he comes in telling so the story. You, are you saying these people were probably actually looked at each other? They looked at each other <laughs> and uh, they talked to each other and uh, they exchanged ideas, which is a, a lost art, but that's how people got by with entertainment, especially there's two families in this house. There's a lot of people in this house. Yes. So he comes in and he tells the story and he kind of gets laughed at. And so... When this incident happens and it's crazy and he's involved and now he's telling this thing again, now to the police authorities and they kind of get it's like, wow, this guy's, well, look, everyone's very excited, very excitable. They can see that. That's kind of why they took it seriously. That's why they just didn't send one officer like, yeah, officer Fred's here going to go check it out. Just go appease them. And so a bunch of them go out because there's something to this. They can see that everyone's very upset. And yeah, the character of uh, Billy Ray is like, well, he might be exaggerating. The, the story is maybe getting a little fatter, a little grander here as he goes on. My point here is that in the newspaper reporting with uh, a Doris, that's the newspaper reporter, I believe, who first checked him out, the story has changed a little. So maybe he's saying like, well, I toned it down, but now I, I need to tell you what really happened. So it's gone back from just like something that does sound like a meteor to something landing, which is totally different. And some of the skeptics like Brian Dunning will point out, it's like there's a big difference between seeing something, a celestial event like that, and the actual arrival of goblins. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you see something landing, that's a definite connection. If it's just a streaking across the sky then you can make a good argument that they're not connected. That's a great point. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath and the investigation. Yeah, what happened after all that? Well, one of the best things that anybody ever did was this guy, Andrew Bud Ledwith. Yeah. Now, 
Andrew was an announcer and an engineer from radio station WHOP in Hoptown, and he stumbled onto the case accidentally the next morning. He was a man of many talents, and ham radio was a hobby of his, and I guess he had been at home having some kind of tech issue with his ham radio, and he decided on his day off he was going to go down to the station and talk to the chief engineer to help get it sorted out. So he pops into the radio station, and everybody there is buzzing about the little green man and asking him whether or not he's seen them. So having some artistic ability, I guess he liked to do sketches and stuff like that, in addition to being an announcer at the radio station, an engineer, and also a ham radio operator. So Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah, a radio he, man. He had a lot yeah. going on. So he yeah, exactly. So he took it upon himself to go visit the witnesses out in Kelly and see if he couldn't sketch out a drawing of the creatures that they had seen. Now, Bud was savvy, too. This is the other thing I like about him. He was conscious of not leading the witnesses as he spoke to them about what these creatures looked like. Well, he had some reporter chops. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he, he was, I guess he was exceptionally careful not to make suggestions on the appearance of what they had seen. So one of the first people he sat down with, she was actually sitting outside in a chair, I think, in the front yard when he got there, was Ma Lankford or Glennie Lankford, the matriarch of the family the most stalwart and sober witness of the entire group. We mentioned her in part one. I want to quote what Bud said about sitting down with her. And this is from the same report, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter from the Center for UFO Studies by Davis and Blocker that we're always mentioning. Quoting, I did not lead the women in any way as the picture was drawn. They were extremely positive of what they had seen and had not seen. It was a matter of following their directions as to the shape of the face, eyes, hands, and body. If I even so much as advanced a supposition of how one particular feature might have looked, they would quickly correct me. Mm -hmm. He goes on more to talk about the drawing process. I'm quoting this from pages 43 through 45 of that Center for UFO Studies report. I just thought this was really fascinating. You can get a, a good sense of his approach here. I started by drawing a large face as they directed, but as we progressed, it seemed obvious that the whole figure would not fit on the paper, on the scale. So we started again. Very honest. Yeah. It wasn't long before the apparition, in quotes, began to take form. The eyes were like saucers, large and set about six inches apart. They seemed to be halfway around the side of the face. The ears were flappy, like a piece of leather. They seemed to be pointed at the top, and they were too big, in quotes. The head itself was circular and completely bald on top. Sounds like me. And the features, <laughs> such as eyes and ears, were not placed on the head as we might expect them to be. As Scott says, derp eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. We progressed to the body. No one was sure whether there was a neck or not, so we left it out. This always reminds me of Rocky Horror. Mm. According to the women... The body was thin with a formless straight figure. The arms and legs were spindly. The arms were peculiar. They were almost twice as long as the legs and almost touched the ground. Where the feet would be, the hands were huge, bulky-looking things with curling talons several inches long in place of fingernails. The only part of the face that no one else could describe was the nose, mainly because, as they all agreed, The huge eyes were tremendously fascinating and distracted their attention from the other features. I tried to sketch in a nose. They seemed to agree that the creature might have had one, but no one was sure. So we removed it. Vera Sutton called to Mrs. Taylor in the kitchen to come out and look at the sketch. See, here's what we saw last night. After the basic shape had been sketched and the head added at the top, Mrs. Langford said that it was so like the apparition she had seen that she was not going to look at it any longer and she went back outside. The three other women, my companion and I, stayed inside to put the finishing touches on the drawing. 
When it was completed, we took it outside to show to Mrs. Lankford, who took one look, said we hadn't missed a thing, and asked me to take it away. She said she didn't want to look at it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, again, doesn't sound like somebody who's pretending. Doesn't sound like somebody who had any confusion about what she was seeing. No. And these drawings that Bud Ledwith made that day, there's a bunch of them, or, you know, three or four. They are far and away the most famous drawings of the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins in the world. And we have a picture of the first one at our website. And I do think that the Pokemon inventors need to get their royalties to his descendants. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the fur, yeah, we, the, the fur changes it up. See? Yeah, the yeah. fur, yeah. We changed, we put diamonds, yeah. Right. So here's what's interesting about Ledford. I mean, he's not even a news reporter from the radio station. He's an engineer. Yes, he's an announcer, but he's not, he, he was he's a, not a... Yeah, he was a sometimes announcer. He yes. would get on, I think, probably the time is 10.45. Right, because yeah. the person that did the story was an actual journalist from the same radio station. Right, a right. journalist came and did the story, and yeah. that was not him. But Ledford got one of the best, most reliable stories we have that was just the day after the encounter. And not only was he an engineer, he's capable of sketching something. And I will say that this Hopkinsville creature in his picture is not exactly Da Vinci. I'm just saying if I'd, if I'd done it, it would have been a stick figure. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, right. I can't even yeah. draw something as simple as that. Right. But, but the most notable, other than a lot of the reporters that would show up afterwards yes. who weren't following journalistic principles and integrity, I would say. Zero. Uh, zero, yeah. a lot of them. Because what did he say? He's not forcing... He any kind of image. And when they showed up... And like, even when he accidentally did, they said, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like, that was Mrs. Langford yeah. was saying, no, that's not... Because she was very adamant about exactly what happened. Right. He showed up and did it the right way, as if he got a journalism degree and remembered his teachings, whereas the other reporters that showed up, what happened is that they... Well, uh, Mrs. Langford and the families found out, hey, we've been totally misrepresented. We didn't yes. say all that. We didn't say all that. Well, the other guys, again, this is the 50s, and I believe it probably still goes on today, they're trying to sell papers. Hey, I'm telling you right now, my wife has done interviews, you know, because she works in TV, she's done interviews back home with her local newspaper where she's from. And not a ton, actually. There's just one in particular that I can (laughs) think of. But the article was filled with misinformation. Yeah. And it was, there was a quote that she never said. There was background information that wasn't right. And I don't think it was necessarily malicious. No, but but I see it happening across the board. Yes, because reporting is done by people and people have preconceived notions. They have their own motivations for what they want to achieve with this. And so that, those things happen. And I believe a lot of journalists, their hearts in it, but not getting any kind of political realm here, but everybody's got a now a, a varied p- opinion about what journalists have been doing lately and how effective it is and what their motivations are. You know, so, it's one of my favorite interviews that we've done lately, actually, was with Frederick Allen, yes. who was a noted journalist, one of the founding guys at Cable News Network, when that was what it was before it was called CNN. Well, he was, yeah, he, he was there. Uh, he was there the in, the, in yeah, the early days. Right. He made a very funny remark about yeah. what journalists had become. And <laughs> and uh, go back to the Plumber episodes if you want to hear it. But, <laughs> but to, to your point right. about the role of journalism now and how that's changed. It's well the thing is and, people and, people haven't changed. Their methodology has changed. Of course how the news is gathered, that's changed and you could say well videotape doesn't lie now, but it's still edited. Yes. It is edited by people who have to varying degrees a way that they want to present the news. And it's like if you want C-SPAN or just rolls, you know, yeah. for 24 hours. Yeah, okay, that's raw. You make up your own minds, but talking about the subsequent articles. Now that's why I go back to the original first article that I talked about in part one from the Kentucky New Era, 
is that it's fresh. It's right then. It was the next morning. Right, which is the same time these drawings are taking place. Exactly, and it was... In a the, lot of ways, the this is the of, most reliable information we're going to get. That's what I'm thinking, is that this person... And there's some In discrepancies, right? Yeah. There's just, you know, there's some obvious discrepancies. Elmer Lucky Sutton's name was named Cecil. Yeah, I don't know where that came from because I saw that also somewhere else where yeah. he was called Cecil. But I think they took it from that article. Then that, that was a misnomer. It was yeah, a mistake. It was a mistake. Well, he, maybe another name that he gave, and then like, well, I don't like Cecil. I, you know, I don't like Elmer either. That's why people call me Lucky. But here's the point: is that for who is there, it's a pretty good documentation. This is the other thing. It's like, yeah, some facts are, are maybe not right. The number of people they couldn't even tell really. The police authorities didn't even know how many people had showed up in the two cars the night previously. So there's a lot of things that are just in the chaos of the time and that moment and event that are not exactly known. But I go by the tone of the article and the tone of the article at the time is pretty even. Yes. In my opinion, it's very unbiased and very objective as much as it can be. Hey, everybody. If you love learning about mysterious events in history, mind-blowing science, or how to improve your life skills with things like cooking, photography, or travel, then stay tuned because The Great Courses Plus is presenting a new special offer for a limited time only. That's right. But to get this exclusive offer, you must sign up within the next few weeks at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about the course we're reviewing again, The Mysterious Etruscans and the lecture on Etruscan afterlife. Are you noticing a theme here? Oh, if you're talking about Etruscan funerary imagery and weird creatures like the Jersey Devil, then yes. <laughs> it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, what's thought to be just ancient Greek and Etruscan afterlife myth may have connections to what some people have claimed to see and what we now refer to as cryptids. It is kind of freaky. And what Forrest is referring to is that sometime after the 4th and 3rd centuries BC, Etruscan tomb art went from showing scenes of an idyllic afterlife on an island paradise to showing more scenes of terror from frightening creatures. The Etruscans believed you had to journey over land and sea to reach the underworld. But when you got to the water, first you had to battle and ride a sea monster like the Greek hippocampus, which had a fish's body and a horse's head. Maybe like an Etruscan Nessie. Eh, might be a stretch, but it really has a lot to do, of course, with the Etruscans losing wars against the Romans, and as they were facing the disintegration of their culture, more of this gloomy imagery started showing up, along with the monsters, like Keiru, who was a man-like figure that was sometimes winged, had a hideous face and beard, and had either vipers at his feet, or in his hand, or coming out of his hair. Another scary demon is Takulka, and like Keru, it also had wings, a large vulture's beak, and the ears of a donkey. It also had snakes in its hair, or was shown holding a bearded snake. So, a lot of animal-human hybrids, or different mashups of animals, or mutated animals, and it kind of becomes a chicken and egg thing. Are these ideas and images somehow just naturally occurring in the human psyche, and then becoming myth, or are they based on things ancient and modern peoples have actually seen. Mothman doesn't seem so scary now. He doesn't, does he? Uh, well, if you like all this kind of stuff like we do, here's that fantastic limited time offer we were telling you about. You can get your first month of The Great Courses Plus for free, plus receive the second month for only 99 cents. That's unlimited access to enjoy their huge library of engaging video lectures for two full months for under a dollar. 
But remember, this special offer to get the first month free and the second month for just 99 cents is only available for a limited time. So you must sign up within the next few weeks and only by using our URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Once again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. And by the way, Forrest, thank you for not doing your Dr. Nick from the Simpsons impression at the beginning. No, you want me to do that now? No, we, no. we still have some time. No. Hi, I'm CD, and when I'm not keeping a nervous, curious eye to the skies, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, in addition to Bud being there, he had a friend that is unnamed in the Center for UFO Studies report, or the I'm going to call it CUFOS. You mm-hmm. might hear me, C-U-F-O-S, in the CUFOS report. And this guy was, I guess, walking around. He was a friend of Bud's. And this guy found a shotgun shell on the floor in the living room. And this points to two things. One, it supports the idea that they definitely shot at something from inside the house the night before. And the police reports say that. They all saw the shotgun shells. All of the reports indicate that there was evidence that weapons had been fired inside the house. But the other thing that this points out, because this is the morning after all of the authorities were there, is that the police did not collect the evidence. They didn't collect any physical evidence. They left the shells there. They didn't take anything from the scene to examine, which is, you know, I think it's unusual. I don't know if they were in shock or they just didn't know how to investigate it. But the fact that those shells were all still there indicates kind of the nature of the investigation. I think it was very chaotic. The other part of it is that it's not a normal story. Look, if another family, this is the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and it's like, well, the Hatfields came up on us. You know, we had a gun battle. Yeah, then they're going to see, okay, who is firing on who, when, who got hit, who shot whom. Yeah. And then they're going to collect shells and they're going to see the, you know, the little chalk outline markers of where all the shells land. You know that whole, I saw, I saw, I think it was history, it was a documentary. I think that, I I know somebody's going to call me out on this, but I think the Hatfield McCoy (laughs) thing started over a pig. A stolen pig. Yeah. Or something I, like that. I think I've, I've heard it. It moved on it's, to like land and whose land was what in yeah. logging and stuff. But of course. I think the initial thing was somebody, that's my pig. No, it's not. It's mine. <laughs> yeah. All the best arguments start that way. <laughs> no, it's always something small and dumb. Yeah. And it turns into a, a conflagration. Well, pigs aren't that dumb. No, but back then it's like, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they're about as smart as a dog, yeah. uh, they say. But back then it's like you didn't have much. So somebody's arguing over something that's all uh, food for your family, that's it could become serious. Yes. But the point here is that, yeah, it's an interesting that you point that out and then other people who have written articles here we're going to get to being skeptical on it say well there was just a 22 hole in the screen and we've seen pictures where it does look like a shotgun blast cluster pointing outwards from the screen and you could say like, well, look, the, screen maybe, was, maybe they, the screen was eventually collected right. and studied. Right. And but I can tell you that. Night. Yeah, they, they didn't no, do anything. No, not that night. They didn't but do But they anything. talk about it in the Kufos report. Right. And they actually made holes in it. Yeah. They made a hole in it with a pencil and compared it to some of the other holes, which at the point, by the time it was collected, was a while later. Yeah. There was rust around the edges. Uh-huh. But the larger holes were consistent with a shotgun blast. Okay. So I see and that's the small what it, yeah. holes where they tried to fake it, like with a pencil, right. as, say, a twenty-two round going through or whatever, it, yeah. they looked different. It was like a perfect border around it. Oh, sure, right. So all that stuff was studied by the Center for UFO Studies. Right, but just I so think you at know, this later. night... Yeah, right. At this night, though, and into the next morning when the two other officers showed up and both the male adults were gone, they'd yes. gone to Evanston. Well, one had gone hunting. Right. I thought they were together, but one went hunting with the friend and then the other one went 
to get a truck or some furniture or okay. something like that. Yeah. Which I'm going to talk about here in a minute. Right. Well, yeah, it's not a typical scene that you can investigate normally. I think part of it, they don't know what to make of it, the authorities. Yeah. It's so strange. It's like, we got the stories, uh, we checked around, we got spooked by a shrieking cat, and then we left after a few hours. But the time that they spent there was significant because if this was all nothing, they get there like, eh, I think these farmers are pulling our legs here. It's all a big ruse on a Sunday night to get us out of bed. That's one thing. They wouldn't have spent uh, three, you know, two or three hours there. Yeah, and you don't take the whole family plus three kids down to the police station. Yeah, on their side, yeah. right. And, yeah, on and, their uh, side. Yeah, so it's just the whole thing is is something's going on here. Uh, well, they just don't know what. And here's the other thing. The next morning, Ledwith and his unnamed friend went out to the gully where the ship or the UFO was supposed to have landed, and they saw no physical evidence of any kind. Now, right. this presents a problem for me. It says to me, how did the goblins get there? On the other hand, if the object that Billy Ray saw from the well was a UFO, how could he know exactly where it landed if it was down in a gully, as I said earlier, and below a tree line? Well, he may have seen it descending, I think that's but there's the, some assumptions there. Right. No, no. Here And here's the story if it dipped down below view. So he yes. didn't actually, it's not like little legs came out, little tripod legs, and yeah. then the thing landed. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. And then the classic, the door opens and that's the stairs coming down from the bottom of it. Yes. He just saw this, whatever this light craft was of some kind, this metallic object, saucer-like, it was reported dip down below his field of vision, and he just, I guess it's in the gully. Yeah, I and just it shot like, out rainbows, too, when it was flying. Yeah, we had an exhaust, yeah, yes. a multicolored, not rainbow, not, yeah, <laughs> the more you know, that now you make me think of that. It sounds like a prismatic light exhaust of some kind, where it was kind of like all the colors that you would see in a prism or a rainbow, refracted light coming out as some kind of exhaust. Yes. No sparkly twinklies. Yes. Yeah, right. So right. he's got an idea, though, that something has landed. I think that's the story I'm sticking to. Well, he, this is my thing about all of that, whether yeah. it landed or not. Do aliens even need a UFO? Like, Wait. why not pop out of a three-dimensional tube well, that skin, only in, yeah. intersects with our dimension in two dimensions, like that hairy biped did at Skinwalker Ranch? That's what I'm saying. It could be that. So that's Or you could question. pop out of a slow-moving cloud of green fog that distorts time and space. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm getting off track. Yeah. Well, no, the point is, with this story, though, if you were a ufologist, that is a good point. Is there a connection between the two events? And that's what people are saying later on here as we do our analysis is that the sighting of this strange object, if that's what it is, is that connected to the goblins? Are they really two separate paranormal events? Well, and, and, and as we get into this and we, we start studying more the John Keel realm and worlds of the ultra terrestrials and Bigfoot jumping out of a UFO and ghosts popping up. And with, the UFO disco wizard. Yeah, with the grinning man and they're all uh, riding together. The long in a, silvery in a, beard. In a jalopy. The idea is that there somehow these strange connections between disparate, seemingly disparate events, but they're happening all together. Now, is that the case here or did a craft of some kind land and they popped out of it? But here's the other thing about Bud and his but I mean, how do they even know what to look for at a landing site? Are well, they looking for broken branches high yeah. up? Are they looking for depressions in the earth? Or do they just stand there and go, huh, <laughs> well, I don't see any scorch marks. Right, you right. Know? There's a thousand different descriptions of different craft. If you look at Woody Derenberger in the Mothman flap, uh, yes. talking about that tin flying lantern that supposedly injured cold stepped out yeah. with a squeaky car door. Yes. It didn't put down any It didn't ever touch the ground. Though. Never touched the ground. It yeah. went down about six inches off the ground. 
very precision-like. That guy's a good flyer. Yeah. Good parallel parker, I'm sure. Touches down, he steps out, thing shoots up 30 feet. Out of sight. Out of sight, above... Which is where this craft could have been the whole night. It's another thing they said in the Center for UFO Studies report. Yeah. Maybe it went back up. Maybe it never touched the ground. Like you just said, maybe there's all different kinds of landings. No, that's what you find is it's like so many different types of uh, descriptions of different craft and what they do, uh, different shapes breaking into multiple crafts. Now, here's the thing, though, yeah. I and I openly admit to this, right. we sound a little bit, or at least I do, like I'm rationalizing a lack of evidence <laughs> of a craft yeah. landing and by saying, right. oh, well, it floated, or what do you can, yes, we can say whatever we want to fit the picture, mm-hmm. but I'm also open to the idea that a craft doesn't need to land or even get near a place for something strange to appear. Right. To me, mandating that a craft appears and lands, leave evidence, and then have something get out of it is as archaic as insist that an extraterrestrial that's come from another time, space, dimension, whatever, (laughs) has to have a car. (laughs) There's not necessarily a connection because in the bigger picture, you think, oh, well, was Billy Ray exaggerating about the meteor or whatever he saw? Well, maybe he would be if he was the only one that saw something that night. But then we had the cop that saw the same thing or saw something on a different trajectory, but coming from the direction of the house at a restaurant right up about five miles up the road. Exactly. Well, now, now I'm not quite as the expert as Rob K here, but I do know that I've paid attention to the different forms and variations and I always make a mental note. I observe everything. He's referring to Rob Christofferson and the Research Corps. Yes. Yes. uh, Shaman Rob, I think he's now calling himself on Mm -hmm. Twitter. He will know all these different aspects, but I've heard various strange things that are thematic in that the slow rolling type of UFO that seems to be emitting flame or it looks like it's on fire. Now, I had a friend, and of course, and again, this is low-hanging fruit, folks. It's like he was at Burning Man <laughs> years ago, but... it's The story is completely discounted already. Dude, oh, <laughs> this thing was flying. You know, I'm doing the surfer guy. Of but, all the perfect yeah. places to go unnoticed where or go. where no one's going to believe that you're Absolutely. actually... A, you can get land and right. get out and defy all laws of physics, yeah. and everybody's just going to be like, great costume. <laughs> Fire and installation, man. Yeah, how long did it take yeah. you to make that? Exactly. Well, right. How so, long did it take to break the laws of <laughs> physics? No one's going to believe you, of course, because everybody's on shrooms or something. So what they described, though, is kind of mind-blowing. And, and this was early on. So I actually hadn't heard of too many types of different sightings then, because this is a while ago. Yeah. But a lot. I've certainly heard a lot more since then. But the way he described it is kind of mind-blowing and that a slow rolling, he said, massive, what it looked like a crumpled ball of tinfoil that was on fire, rolling slowly across the sky and was seen by a lot of people. Now, I didn't interview a bunch of other people who went to Burning Man that year, but he said that a massive cheer went up like, oh my God, you know, double rainbow time here. Yeah. And he said, it wasn't just me. I wasn't just tripping out. He actually wasn't on anything. He doesn't do that. He says, I wasn't on anything. I, you're not going to believe me because I'm at Burning Man. Yeah. And I'm half naked and dusty. But <laughs> this, this thing's rolling across the sky. And he said, everybody saw it. And you're just like. But why couldn't it just be a balloon wrapped in aluminum foil doused in a highly flammable. That's 100 feet wide and rolling slowly on fire across the sky unaided with non-ballistic motion. There's a stuff there. Oh, non-ballistic motion. You said it was slowly drifting. My point is it wasn't a 20 mile an hour meteor. Yeah. Which people, it was a meteor, dude. You saw a meteor. It's like, no, he's a photographer. He goes out the desert a lot. He's photographed meteor showers. He knows what a meteor is. Yeah. Was what this I, nighttime? No, in the daytime, I think okay. he described it. It was like afternoon. It wasn't like they're all blinded by the sun. And what is that? Well, it's the sun and you're tripping on acid. It's, right. He said, definitely, that's what it was. A lot of people saw it. Everyone's screaming. 
And he said, I, I have no explanation for it. I remember clearly that was his description. It was a tumbling, giant, massive, wadded tinfoil ball that was on fire. He said, I don't know what that is. Yeah. They, so, meanwhile, they're inside. They're like, well, <laughs> nobody's at Stonehenge anymore. This must be the place. <laughs> I, that, look, like you said, if I were trying to trip people out, if I were the trickster UFO type, it'd be yeah. like, oh, dude, I got a place for us to roll slowly over. Yeah. Watch this. Well, my whole thing is, if you're going to come to Earth in a UFO, just make it look like a 737. With a vertical takeoff? And, no. Uh, yeah, I'm just oh, saying, you, you make just it blend fly it across in. the sky, and yeah, it looks like in. an airplane. Big, well, obviously, you know. my point is that they don't care about that, because while it's very uncommon to see these well, they do if they were following the prime directive. I suppose that's true, but how many are, are doing that? What they saw at Hopkinsville on the farm that night, is that really what it was? As we've been doing this show, it's been forming in my consciousness and subconscious about what are we really seeing here? Is what Woody Derenberger, if you believe him that this flying tin can fly, you know, we, we talked about this in Mothman, it touches off the ground. Well, the physical motion is possible, but is he only able in his mind to conceive of a flying lantern with a squeaky, rusty car door that creaks when you get out of it? Because whatever this thing is, if it's glowing, translucent, and uh, bioluminescent, and it's organic, but he's only able to see a flying, rusty lantern, his mind's saying, we're going with a rusty lantern, because otherwise we're going to really lose it right here. I still have to get home. I'm a sewing machine repairman or salesman. So how do we know what they're even seeing? Because when you say that you go out back and there's no evidence of landing pod craft or exhaust burning the grass, well, certainly there's a lot of cases of UFO type craft landing where there is physical trace evidence, either a ring or there's some white powdery substance. Who knows? I don't know, but it's the barkeeper's friend. <laughs> yeah. Oxalic acid deposits. There's something like that. But we're trying to wrap our heads around this in a very human way. We try to make sense of it as humans. And what we understand is like the thing lands, feet come out, land. It makes a depression in the grass. A little staircase comes out and a guy steps out stepping. But is that even how they have to exit the craft? There's two things to attribute to that. And it, maybe this belongs more in our theories and conclusions. But to a certain extent, that can go two ways. One of the ways that it can go is that it's being made up and all you can make up is what you know. Of course. The other way that it can go is that it is only what you can perceive. And it goes back to that whole thing, which I think we determined was apocryphal about mm. the Native Americans not being able to see Columbus's ships no, when no. they showed up. That, dare I say, debunkery opinion about this is that the, from the one article that we could find quickly with the time we had was that, I believe it was Captain Cook, and it was something, his first scientific officer or whoever was in charge, maybe it was the doctor, they're passing slowly in front of natives off the coast, and the guy in his diary says... I can't believe that no one's looking up. They're not even looking. They're not even looking up. We're maybe a hundred yards or less off the coast. Nobody's noticing us. So that part is real. Now, it's been attributed to Columbus and his voyage, and they reported seeing UFOs. Yes, some, I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. USOs, so, too. Right. Now, I believe this is Captain Cook, and I believe it's not the captain, but it's his one of his first officers, one of his first mates, is in his diary. It's inconceivable well, it, to them, well, he, so they to, don't see it. It doesn't make... That's the thinking. Now, here's what people are saying is, when they're analyzing this. is like, well, come on. They're farming on the beach, and they don't have time to like wave at ships. Yeah, that's all they're doing is farming. You see these things that you've never seen before passing by, you're going to look up. Yeah. That's my point. It's ridiculous. And this is kind of the overall theme here tonight. It's ridiculous to think that you're 20 yards away from these people. Say it's 100 yards away. 
sailing and nobody has time because they're too busy farming on the beach in the sand to look up doing their things. How do you farm in the sand? That's my point. Oh. That's what we, well, you know, they're busy. <laughs> they're looking for taro root. They yeah. don't have time to look up and wave at everything that passes by. How many things pass by? Yeah. That's it. There's a ship out there. You've never seen anything like it. It's massive. It's pushed by the wind. No one on that island can make anything like that. And what's the international rule of boating, Scott? You wave. Yeah. When you see another boat pass, what do you do? You wave. When you see a plane come by, you wave. And my great-grandmother, she said uh, back in the old days, she would hang the wash out on the line and be blowing by the wind, and she'd wave it at a plane. The airplane would dip Tips its wings. wings. Yeah, sure. There you go. That's my point. You wave. Anyway, so that doesn't make sense to me, but that's the rationality of that. It's like, no, no, they knew the ships were there. So in something like this, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure this out from a very human standpoint, kind of like the Fermi paradox. Oh my gosh, it would take so long to get here. Yeah, using fire. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. And that's how we have to think about it because, well, we have rockets. They use rockets, right? Like, we don't know that. Yeah. Obviously, I'm going to guess no, because it's amazing what we can do, but it's still very quaint. We're using hot liquid oxygen and solid rocket fuel to get around, and I'm sure they would think it was quaint too. By the way, here's something, let's say we take away all the evidence of the craft. Here's something else that was amazing that we did not mention in part one, which I thought was really fascinating. A neighbor of the Suttons reported that he was dead certain that he saw lights moving around in the field behind their house exactly between 7.30 and 8 p.m. that night. That is precisely the time for Exactly. It was such a well-defined moment for him that he even surmised and remembered that he had surmised that their pigs must have gotten loose and they were out in the field trying to round them up. This would have been the exact time that creatures would have been approaching from the gully or the direction of the gully towards the Sutton house. So just another thing to keep in mind, we have a neighbor. Now, we remember, we had the neighbors too, which we mentioned in part one. One said they didn't hear much of anything in terms of gunshots. They heard three or four shots. Another one said it sounded like a small war. Now we have another neighbor who's saying there were lights in the field. And in my mind, this is like E.T., out behind the <laughs> yeah, house between right. 7.30 and 8, at which point they were all inside the house. And we know that from their story, yeah, yeah. provided that their story is truthful. Now, you have to wonder what the lights were. Were the lights their glowing bodies? Was it the silvery metal uniforms? Or maybe it's like uh, the hammer, you know, in the Hunt for Red <laughs> October, they use the hammer to tell the submarine yeah, that the DSRV right. is attached, the right. deep sea vehicle. You pound on it because they can hear that. Yeah. Right. That's all you can do to say it's okay to open the door. Right. Even though you got this multi-million dollar exactly. submarine. right. Maybe when you come down to a planet, no matter how you got there, bending space and time, whatever, right. you still need a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you know, it's dark. <laughs> no, that's interesting uh, because... I, uh, I mean, it's a joke. No, I, it's a bad one. <laughs> no, but I was actually thinking about this from the people that have described... We're not going to get into this now, but we're watching... I don't even want to bring it up because it upsets Scott. It's that documentary about the UFO experiencer. On oh, Netflix. Romanek. Oh, yes. Yeah, Stan. Stand. Yeah, don't, don't, a billion don't, people don't have get, asked us about that. Don't get you, wound up. You would not be surprised, folks, that Forrest and I have differing opinions about that one. Not terribly, but slightly differing. But my point is, is that you start extrapolating into advanced alien technology, if it exists, 
Why do they need lights? We have infrared... All right, so what does this have to do with Stan Romanek? Because he claimed in one scene that a bright light shone on the side of the house and it actually burned, it made an impression, and then uh, straight yes. mysterious men showed up and took all the paneling away the next yeah, morning. Yeah, to me it looked the... like he sprayed the side of the house with a garden hose, but sure. Okay, so then I'm wondering, it's like, well, you see that. Close encounters, what do they see? They see a probing light that gives you a sunburn. Yes. Uh, but what does the UFO need a light? If you're talking about lights, what's the purpose? They don't need to to see, right? Because we have infrared flare vision. We can see in the dark without lighting things up like daylight. Yes. Does it have other functions? Is it a probing kind of uh, mechanism? But why do they need headlights on this thing? Yeah. Is, is what you're asking. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what I start wondering about. Like, what is the purpose of this technology? Why Are we seeing that because that makes sense? Do they really need it to see us and give us a sunburn on half of our face like Richard Dreyfus? What's the point? Yeah. So we don't know. And probably who knows if these descriptions are totally accurate, like we said. But well, let's but talk, people let's are talking about lights, and that's a lot of description uh, that actually happened recently about balls of light in a field in Wiltshire, England, creating crop circles. Yes. There's resonating themes here that happen, and if you pay attention, you'll see these go on. But it's not one main theme, and it's not one line of reasoning or thinking that explains all this or makes any kind of sense. All right, so let's get back to the drawings. There is a little bit more about that, about what Bud was doing. Bud had finished this the one drawing that had been described to him by the women of the house because Billy Ray and Lucky were gone that day, as we had said earlier. Bud said that Billy Ray came back while he was working on the drawing, and he left it just, I think, on the bed there or somewhere where he was sitting, and Billy Ray came into the room, and when he saw it, he ran over and picked it up yelling, that's it, that's it, that looks just like it. That's what he said to the drawing, the first one that Bud had drawn. Now, there's some things to keep in mind about Billy Ray, what we already said about him exaggerating and spinning a yarn, et cetera. After he saw Bud's first picture, he got more involved in it, and Bud drew a second one, and suddenly the alien had a very well-defined mouth and a nose, even though the rest of the family, and most importantly, Ma Langford said they never saw a nose, and the mouth was nothing more than a slit. Uh, in addition to this, Billy Ray seems to have given it a six-pack. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, why not sex it up a little? Yeah. However, Bud's overall impression was that the family was being, on the whole, truthful, and he felt that something had definitely happened, something very real. Now, consider the following from his report, which I'm reading again from the Center for UFO Studies report by Davis and Bucker. I tried to take the most objective attitude. I believe I was in a unique position because until I went to the radio station that morning, I had not heard anything about the affair. And after hearing the first jokes, I decided to keep an open mind until I could tell for myself. I made a mental note not to believe or disbelieve, but to report the incident as it was told to me from the family's lips. As the reports spread outside the family, they were distorted in all directions. Everyone who told the story seemed to add his own ideas of how the creatures looked. For this reason, I am pleased that we had the advantage of time. Our morning interview was the first complete report of the whole night's happenings. The women were friendly and relaxed, and we had no disturbance. The sightseeing horde had not yet grown overwhelming. That night, we talked to the men in the same way immediately after they came home, before they had any opportunity to discuss the first interview with the others. I was greatly impressed with the sincerity shown by both the men and the women, and one other fact was in evidence. When I arrived that morning, the women were still badly frightened and they had not gotten over it when I last saw them. 
So for me, the end game on Bud Ledwith's report is firstly, thank God we have it. And secondly, he seemed to have gone in there as impartially as he could and done a good job getting some sketches done. He also, and we didn't mention it much here, took careful note and kept track of everyone's behavior. And there's more of it in the report, making observations of how they were behaving. And he appeared to be looking for any tell of a hoax, a lie, or any disingenuity. And he called it out when he did see some of it, notably with Billy Ray. But he also noted that everyone was legit rattled. They'd been up 36 hours when he saw them, and it was obvious. There was evidence in the house that they had fired weapons, and while there was no evidence of a craft landing in the gully, he seemed to have believed that they definitely witnessed something unusual. At this stage, I want to talk about something that... I don't feel like we need to go super deep on just yet because yeah. at, the, at the end of this, we'll talk about the theories, especially the ones presented in the uh, Center for UFO Studies report and the other theories that people have put forth, which are going to come up specifically after the next part of our show that we're going to discuss. But right. I, I did want to mention when it comes to the nature of a hoax, because a lot of times when you look at paranormal stories, that's one of the biggest things you have to consider. It's one of the ongoing arguments, whether it's the Patterson-Gimlin film or whatever. Right, Was this a hoax? Right. Is this a hoax? And in my experience, when you have a hoax or a conspiracy to perpetuate a hoax or any kind of conspiracy, I think it's proven. I, I didn't look it up, so I'm not going to cite it right now. Oh, I just think wing it. I think it. it's yeah. proven. Yeah, I'm just going to wing it. The more people that are involved, the less likely you are to be successful with it because someone's going to talk. Someone's going to talk. Yeah. You get loose lips sink ships. And it's the right. same thing with hoaxes. If you got a lot of people in on it, sooner or later, somebody's going to say something. And I think in this case, when you've got 11 people, yeah. caught up in this experience of all differing ages. Yeah, It's not just a bunch of best buds like the crew on King of the Hill. Hey, let's do this. <laughs> it's family from yeah. all different ages. We have the matriarch. We have the kids. We have teenagers. I mean, even though they're married, we have this 18-year-old yeah. wife. Mm-hmm. Then we have little kids as well. Now, I don't know about you. I have a young son. He's eight years yeah. old. This is not a guy you can tell a secret to. <laughs> In fact, the minute that you say that it's a secret, it is virtually impossible for him not to go tell it to the person he's not supposed to tell. Aha. And that's what sunk Balloon Boy. That is what sunk Balloon Boy. (laughs) On the Today Show, no less. Yeah. He was very nervous. I think he threw up uh, on the couch. Yeah, I felt so bad Because his dad's like, just be quiet. Just go with this. Yeah. We're going to get a reality show. I'll buy you a motorcycle. Just go with it. And he's like, conflicted. He's squirming around and it's eating him up inside. Yeah, it was horrible. And and that's my thing. That's a good point, though. Why is it happening? Why is this a hoax? Why? Because the dad's a publicity freak. Right. And Joseph Mole. Hatton during that whole the Kincaid's Cave era, oh, you know, yeah. in the late 19th century. Why did he do it? It's to get in the papers or just to say like, hey, I put in like eight fake stories of these wondrous geographical underground locations or something fantastical and they bought it. And that's the satisfaction that he gets or somebody else who fools either the media or other just other people and the reason is the satisfaction of being famous for that and having being more clever than these people. You put one over on them. You know what? I just quickly, since you brought up Mulhattan, oh, yeah, I yeah. do want to mention a friend of the show, Nathaniel Lloyd, who has his own podcast called Historical Blindness, Yes, has just done a show on Joseph Mulhattan. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Which yeah. I think was inspired by our Kincaid's Cave show. I don't know. Nobody seemed to respond to that. I liked it. I, <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that show. That was, we enjoyed it. Hey, that's, yeah. yeah. No, people as complain. As we like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's why we're doing all this, isn't it? But people were like, hey, that was obviously fake. They missed the point. I found it to be inconclusive. Yes. Because the Molehatton stories 
pushed it too far, obviously hoaxing it for me, but what was reported with Kincaid's cave is just mysterious enough. I believe we don't really know. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, what's the podcast about? Um, well, Historical Blindness, he takes a look at these kind of historical events that are a little more unusual. I and see. Uh, it's got yes. good production value. So anyway, check it out. It's actually coming out three days after this show is dropping. So go to wherever you get your fine podcasts and uh, look for Historical Blindness, not Hysterical, Historical. <laughs> very and, nice. Uh, the, and the new show is, uh, I guess, Tuesday will be on Joseph Mulhatton, who we talked about in Kincaid's Cave, and also is a hoaxer. So coming back around to the hoaxing yeah. and the idea of hoaxing, I just wanted to reiterate, you're not going to get three young children on board with it. And on top of that, one of these kids actually wrote a book about this. Yeah, when exactly. She grew up. Geraldine Sutton, a uh, stith, I believe. Yes. Uh, it's also an attempt to clear her family's name and bring back some credibility because of what she thought was lost. Now, she was a little girl when this all happened. Yes. But she was a daughter, I believe, of Elmer Lucky Sutton. And so she remembers it. She was young, but she remembers all the hullabaloo and had to grow up with it. Yes. And so she's, and also the stigma of the accusations that the family had made it all up. Absolutely. So having grown up in that, you would know, I think eventually, if this was all some crazy thing that they were trying to put over on people. Now, my point earlier, though, why people do these things is that, yeah, that's a little bit of a kitchen table psychology there. But why they do it is for the notoriety, either personally or in the media, and they come out later like, no, that was me. I mean, people claim to have hoaxed things that I believe they didn't do, yes. uh, just for the notoriety. Some of the crop circles in England, I do not believe it was two old guys with a plank and two ropes. No, okay? and, and <laughs> but, yeah, but, God, everyone talks about those guys, and it has been clearly shown that, yes, you can make a crop yeah. circle that from a distance looks just like a crop circle yeah. with the wooden planks, yeah, well, or a looks, lot like it one. It looks pretty crappy, and it's uneven. Well, yeah, <laughs> but my yeah. point is that up close, the crop circles that they can't figure out, the stalks are bent over. They're not At broken, 90 degrees, exactly. and they're not damaged, and in some cases, they're genetically altered as well. Yes, so, but it looks like they were uh, steamed, something heated the water the vapor in yes. the stock, and it caused it to bend like you would bend wood using high-pressure steam to get it to bend yeah. and keep it in shape like that. And that's not a couple of old drunk guys with wooden ropes. <laughs> no, I'm and sorry. Look, yeah, exactly. And, but yes. uh, conversely, right. I do want to say, just right, we have to do a crop circle oh, show absolutely. sooner or later. Oh, of course. I do want to say that I do believe a large majority of them are hoaxes. Well, that'll be us for us to discuss. But I don't think in they a, all a, are by a sight. I don't see how it's possible. But the larger point is, look at this family, the Suttons and the Taylors. Are they basking in any way? Are they looking or seeking any kind of notoriety? Well, one, there's no phone or TV. Or, yeah. or radio in this house. It's well, not like, Ma, get on the radio. We could be on the news here. Well, there were some accusations that they had hoaxed it for financial gain because they, turned they down put on, people they who did. tried to set up concessions on their property. And but in addition to this, though, the counterpoint was that they put up a sign that said they were charging admission. Oh yes. To come onto the land. Right. But what the Center for UFO Studies report states, the Davis and Blocker report states that. It was more apparent to them, as well as to Ledford, who did the drawings yes. downstream, that they were doing that because they were getting so annoyed right. with all the people showing up. Yeah. And as we have clearly stated in many of our episodes of our show, including with Darren Berger, who mm -hmm. had cited Indrid Cold and Mothman or these other people, you get a lot of looky-loos. A lot of people are coming, they're knocking on the door, they want oh, to yeah. talk to you. Yeah. And that 
was starting to drive them crazy. So the the implication was not that they put the sign up charging admission because they thought they were going to take a ton of money. They just wanted right. a barrier. They wanted exactly. people to be like, oh, I'm not paying to go over there. Yeah. And so maybe they'll go away. Precisely, yeah. because nobody was there to collect it. That was another big argument against it being a hoax. It's like, well, it's a money-making scheme. Well, the two men who would have watched over any money collection were gone. The yeah. two guys that worked at the carnival who were in that kind of business took off the next day. Well, it's kind of like poor Judd in our ringtone, which you can buy now, the astonishing yeah. theme. This Carney. is a guy that's traditionally paid a lot of money <laughs> uh, for his yes. tracks. Yeah. He's going to make as much as 70 or $80 from that ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's worth, it's worth the, probably the jump drive he had to buy to give it to us uh, <laughs> on. And uh, yeah. Yes, we're sorry, Judd. But the point was, none of these earmarks really show any kind of attempt to do that. And it's interesting you brought that up, and we, we or I guess you or I brought up crop circles, because that happens there too where you do have a lot of unscrupulous business. People will show up saying they're they're the farmer or they represent the farm and taking admission. That's right. They set up little circles. stands yeah, and like, charge you to no, come in it's there. It's just some bloke who showed up with a folding table and a sign saying like, it's 20 quid to go in. And so By the way, the other yeah. thing about the crop circles that are genuine, yeah. I don't know why I said that that way, yeah, but, but I the, other, the, the other thing about the crop circles that are genuine yeah. is that people often get sick in them. They get uh, oh, they get yeah, nauseated. You, and yeah, you have, a, you have a, uh, now, it could like be a psychosomatic. It could be psychosomatic. It could be gravity. There's an article that I was showing Scott that came out just a few days ago about Wiltshire, the police saying, if you see one happen, report it. Yeah. Because what will happen is that there's some other websites that are officially, like MUFON, who are very serious about it. And they'll come out with a drone. It'll be non-destructive. They'll photograph it. And they'll also try and keep other people away. Because, yeah, you have, just imagine it. Now 100 people tromping through your wheat field, destroying even more wheat. Your livelihood. Your livelihood. And also the circle itself. I mean, the, some of them are just beautiful and astounding, really. Uh, yeah. But it's destroyed crop. It causes more problems to the farmer than it would be to set up a roadside attraction. So the, the argument there as well is like, well, the farmer's doing it to, you know, get people out there. Like, no, no, he makes a lot more money off the crop that he does looky-loos, paying a few uh, British pounds to go out there to see it. So that's what you see here. And I, I believe that defense and that any money that, or sign that they put up was just to scare people away that were like, yeah, like you said, like, well, I'm not paying for that. And it's like, plus there's nothing to see, really. Well, and that's what they wanted. I mean, you can tell from the interviews with Glennie Lankford yeah. that she was tired. By the time they did the report, the Center for UFO Studies report, not when... Ledford went from the radio station because he went the next day. Right. And then that report was cited and reproduced within the Center for UFO Studies report. Yeah. But the Center for UFO Studies report was, they were visited so much later and had been visited by so many journalists that they were burnt out, angry, and didn't want to talk to anybody. And they felt like they had been lied about over and over and Absolutely. over Absolutely. And that's, so. if you read the Isabel Davis book with Bloker, that's what she says is that they weren't exactly rude, but just kind of tight-lipped. They were so tired of it. And she was being as polite as she could. She said, like Look, when I, I tried to call Ronnie from uh, the Delphus Ring. Exactly. I don't know if I we called, talked about that. Well, there but, was a first yeah. interview. I really screwed it up. because <laughs> I wanted, were very nervous. I yes. wanted, yeah, I was nervous and I wanted to talk to him. And I called him, I looked his number up, called him, yeah. and he answered the freaking phone. Now, at this point, he was a senior citizen. And if you don't know about this, just go find the Delphus Ring story. Right. Anyway, long story short, I spoke to him on the phone. I said, hey, I would love to talk to you about what happened yeah. to you when you were 16 years old. Like, he yeah. might not even remember it, frankly. Right, He's lived right. a long, hard life as a farmer. And he was like, sure, call back Friday night or whatever. But yeah. I said, even when I hung up, yeah. 
I feel like there's a 50-50 chance he's <laughs> even going to answer. And sure enough, he didn't pick up the phone. He didn't want to talk about it anymore. He didn't care. No, I don't he didn't think want it wasn't right. It exposure. Didn't, it didn't matter how he was going to be viewed or he didn't know us from Adam. And no. it doesn't it didn't matter how he was going to be portrayed. Now, Glennie Langford, she had been misrepresented quite a bit and she was worried about that. Now, I believe she was pleased with Isabel's portrayal of this. Yes, uh, and her and, approach. And her approach and her manner, because as we said in part one, I think, well, you didn't annoy me as much as Some of them other of, folks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she was just very polite and she was very even and she didn't press them like, well, oh, tell me about the, the large green flappy ears. Just like Bud, the audio engineer, she just let them tell the story. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part two of our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. We'll be back next week with part three. Special thanks again to The Ark. Please remember to support our sponsors, get books in our bookstore, buy our ringtone, join our Facebook group, and come see us at Podcast Movement in Anaheim if you can make it. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm C.D. Clevenger. Hi, I'm Rebecca Nixon. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. To use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. (laughs) 